This is Stories of New Americans with Ron Clutho, featuring inspirational and fascinating personal stories of people from all corners of the globe who are now in St. Louis. We'll take a look at the U.S. through newcomers' eyes, get some insight into world history and cultures, and maybe learn something about ourselves. Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL. Welcome back to Stories of New Americans. Tonight we have a guest from South Sudan, which I believe is still the youngest country on record. It was formed in 2011. My guest is Neil Tutlam. Did I pronounce that correctly? Okay, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming. I thought we would talk a little bit about your country and the country it seceded from and a little bit of background to kind of set the scene for the listeners who may not be familiar with your country, and then we'll go into your story because, I mean, your story is remarkable. Your family's story is remarkable. But let's start by telling us where exactly South Sudan is on the map. Where are the like where is it located geographically? Yes. So as you mentioned, South Sudan was originally part of uh, the Sudan, which uh, at up to 2011 was the largest country on the continent of Africa. Uh, and then in 2011, South Sudan seceded from South Sudan, from, from the Sudan. And so to the north of South Sudan, you have the Republic of Sudan. And then to the east of it, you have Ethiopia, you have Central Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. To the further south, you have Uganda and Kenya to, uh, to the south of the country. So South Sudan is located within that uh, sort of eastern Central Africa region. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now... We're going to talk about South Sudan because that's that's your country, but I thought it might be good to talk about Sudan first, yes. which was much larger until 2011 when South Sudan seceded. Yes. So talk a little bit about just high points of the history of Sudan over the, over the set, last couple of millennia, I guess. Yes. So Sudan, uh, the modern day Sudan, uh, as you know, so that included South Sudan, obviously gained its independence from Great Britain. So that before then, I think it was called the Anglo-Egyptian Condominium, which uh, so it was jointly administered or uh, colonized by the Egyptians and the, the British. It gained its independence on January 1st, 1956. And, and so, you know, so mostly the people who live in the northern part of of Sudan, uh, primarily of the Muslim faith, the people who live in the southern part, um, are, you know, primarily uh, of the Christian faith. But you know, there are people who have other beliefs as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, but the history is much longer than much longer the than British that, and the Egyptians. So, mm-hmm. I think I read about the Kush Kingdom. Yes, mm-hmm. when when was that, and what was that? So that goes back to. I mean, I think before. So, so if you think about Sudan itself, the Kush Kingdom, uh, which was part of you know the Nub- the Nubia King Kingdom as as well, going back to I don't even remember what the 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 the, the year is, uh, but you know before even uh, Christianity or before um, uh, the birth of Christ happened, and so that that's when that um, it has a very long history in that sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then I believe Christianity. Arrived in that part of the world, but then later Islam arrived. Yes, mm-hmm. and so that maybe is one of the reasons why the country eventually divided into divided two. In. Because 
I think you said the most the, the northern part is mostly Muslim, Muslim and Muslim. mostly Arab, yes, ethnic Arabs too, yes. I guess. And then the south is more Christian and yes, predominantly so, Christian, I guess. So I think there are so Christianity, if you think about it, go uh, think earliest arrival of Christianity was maybe somewhere around the six six around six six hundred. Uh, what, what do you call it? The 6,000 PCs or something like well, that. Uh, so maybe the 6th century, century AD. 6th century AD is what I meant to say. So the 6th century is where Christianity actually first arrived in um, in uh, in what is called modern-day Sudan. Um, that went, I think, up to about, um, you know, maybe about 1,500. Uh, and then slowly the Christianity started to die down. And then the modern Christianity in Sudan sort of uh, started coming when the Christian missionaries started going back, I think, somewhere around the 1800s. And would they have been from Britain? A lot of them were from Britain, and so many um, were also from, from the United States. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact that um, so the Christian missionaries that were in my uh, part of the country where I come from were mostly from from the United States. The Presbyterian mm. Church, in particular, uh, was the dominant uh, missionaries around mm. the the border between Ethiopia and South Sudan, which is where where I am from originally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, were, Sudan is, was a huge country geographically. Yes, and I suppose, like many other current African countries, the borders were arbitrarily drawn by colonial powers. Is that the case in Sudan too? Absolutely. So most of the borders in Africa were, um, you know, designed and, and, and drawn somewhere else. Uh, and mm -hmm. so if you read the modern history of Sudan, there's a book uh, by Professor Collins who talks about how, in particular, the border between uh, South Sudan and Ethiopia were drawn where basically a couple of, you know, soldiers going up and down the river and deciding yeah. where uh, where these borders would be. And so you may also know the history in which, um, you know, uh, the colonial power sat in, in Berlin uh, in the 1800s, I think 1894, yeah. 1896, where they basically uh, subdivided the continent into... Um, into their own spheres of influence, and so that's uh, how all of most of these borders came came about. Mm -hmm. If you look at some of these regions, uh, some of these borders m mean nothing to the people who live there. I have family that lives on the Ethiopian side of the border. I have you family. were you were born in Ethiopia, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. I have family that lives on the South Sudanese side of the border, and the border is literally a river that nobody yeah. recognizes as a border. At least people who live in that area. Do you know why the border was drawn the way it was, um, comprising two such largely different populations, the North and the South? It seems to me that that shouldn't even be one country by even bef before independence. I don't, I don't know why they 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 did that, but uh, and 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 maybe there is even a larger point to make is that sometimes the people in the North try to paint this picture as. Oh, our, the northern part is purely people of Arab descent and all that. I remember Dr. John Garang used to say there are more black people in uh, in the northern part of Sudan than there are in the south, southern part of Sudan. So that um, that is another separate point. But um, even during the war, if you listen to many of the politicians who are from South Sudan, they actually, that makes the point, right? It wasn't meant to be one country mm -hmm. to begin with. So South Sudanese uh, started asking for their own independence even before the independence of South Sudan, well before that. And so. Right. There were a couple of 
civil wars in the 20th century before independence yes. actually happened. What Talk about why, was there discrimination against the South? Was there, did the government um, develop the North more than the South, or what What led to this? Yes, so I think uh, the, the, the most uh, uh, probably um, relevant historical point that most of us usually go to is the 1947 Juba Conference in which, you know, literally the fate of the South was, was decided at that point in which uh, this was pre-independence where people were discussing and politicians from the South at that point asked or made demands that South Sudan be its own country. Yes, if the British wanted to leave much later on from the southern part of the country, that was okay. But if they wanted to leave the northern part and give North its independence, that was their issue. But South should be an independent country. Through some uh, mischievous (laughs) dealings in the background, the British decided that, you know, they would leave in 1956. And when they left, they would leave the South Sudanese in the hands of the Northern Sudanese because the Northern Sudanese made the case that, you know, these were their brothers and, you know, they would solve their issues as a family. And and, and that didn't turn out to be the case very quickly. Actually, even before independence, if you remember, the, recall the history of South Sudan, the war of the first uh, Sudanese civil war started in August of 1955, well before its independence. And, so, and mm-hmm. these were some of the issues that really uh, came up around that that time. So South Sudanese were uh, demanding their, their, their rights. And when the Southerners, the Northerners took over power from, from Britain, they, developed, they did not develop the country uh, equitably and they were taking resources from the South. And, and taking them to the north, sort of restricting religion um, in, mm. in, in, this, in the southern part of the country. Uh, some of the earlier um, decisions that were made, they kicked out the missionaries in 1964 um, out, out of the country, and some of them ended up in, in, in Ethiopia. And then, obviously, maybe we'll talk about the second civil war that yeah. started in 1983, which was literally sparked when um, Jaffer and Mary then declared Sharia law to be the law of the land in the in the entire country, and and South Sudanese at that point uh, had had enough and they took up arms to to fight for their um, to basically change the status quo. And by that time, the Sudan was independent from Britain and Egypt. Yes, was, was life better for the South under Britain or under the Sudanese central government? Well, I, that I. I, I, I can't speak to that, but there was no de- there was no meaningful development okay. in, in the South. So the 1972 agreement that um, gave so that end of this, the first civil war in in Sudan gave Southerners autonomy. So 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 the South became a semi-autonomous region. So there was a, a government of Southern Sudan that administered largely the 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 three regions of South Sudan: Upper Nile, Equatoria in Bahar al-Ghazal, which were like the three main regions of the southern part of the country. And and so in, in a way, that government, you know, attended to the needs of the South Sudanese. And so uh, from that perspective, you might say, you know, South South at some point, you know, was 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 good, was was OK. But uh, obviously that government was still under the control of, of the north and, and, and the mm-hmm. president of, of the of the country. Uh, decided, you know, to take use resources, take power from whenever he, he pleased, and so um, in that sense, you know, wasn't probably better. Yeah. And then you said the second civil war started was sparked by the desire to in, 
establish Sharia law in the South. Was there already Sharia law in the North at that time? So Jafar Nimeri basically declared that Sharia law was the law of the land, the entire country of Sudan. And and so, I mean, I think that wasn't the only issue. That was basically the breaking point, right? There was also the issue of the Jongle Canal, which, you know, there was a canal being dug to divert the water of the Nile up to the northern part of the country that was... Um, that would have decimated the livelihoods of the people who live around the Sud. And so that was as an issue that was underlying. And mm. there were these questions of resources as well being taken from the southern part to develop the northern part. And there wasn't the development that uh, people expected from, from the 1972 agreement that, you know, the south would be developed and, and that never really came to fruition. Mm-hmm. And so those issues were there. And, and basically this declaration of, of of Sharia law as the law of the land was that last straw that uh, broke the camel's back. Yeah. So then you said that started in 1983. Yes. And lasted until 2005. So, 2005, so the, the, in 2005, through a very long negotiation that started, I would say, in around 1993, 1994, there was a long-drawn negotiation that happened. Finally, a comprehensive peace agreement was signed in Nairobi, Kenya uh, in January of 2005 mm-hmm. that now provided um, for a six-year an interim period through which the North and the South would uh, would try to address some of these differences. Some Obviously, some of these difficult issues were addressed through this agreement, the agreement. But one of the options of the agreement was a referendum at the end of the six-year interim period. And, and a referendum pr- for or against independence. A referendum for or against independence. And one of the clauses, one of the things that the the peace agreement uh, provide for is make unity attractive for the southerners. And, and it clearly um, the government in the north did not do enough to make unity attractive for, for the people in the southern part of Sudan at the time. Mm. So, what was the what percentage voted for independence? So, oh, somewhere around ninety eight percent of the population okay. voted to secede from the from the north. Yes. That was a clear yes. message. So, yeah, that was a that was no. I was very proud to vote. So we oh. had the opportunity. I was in St. Louis already at the time, but I oh. drove to Nashville, Tennessee, to to cast my vote. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, let's take a short break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about. South Sudan after independence, which was not all roses, unfortunately, either. Okay, we'll be right back. You're listening to 101.9, 94.1 News Talk STL. Stories of New Americans, brought to you by... Byrich and Ramich Law Office and Attorney Nedim Ramich. Visit them at brlegal.net. Listening to Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL. Welcome back. We're talking with Neil Tutlam. He was talking to us about how his country, South Sudan, gained independence from Sudan in 2011. And then what happened on December 15th, 2013? That he had a couple of years of relative harmony and then. Yes. Mm-hmm. So as as I said, uh, South Sudan gained its independence from uh, the old Sudan uh, on July 9th, 2011. 
And for two years, you know, people were impacted. It, it was a jubilant moment. People mm. all across the world um, were very happy for South Sudan, in particular South Sudanese. I remember we were all watching it, or say staying up all night watching the the, the celebration, the independence mm. declaration. And, and that joy and euphoria quickly went away in 2011, unfortunately, where as a result of squabble between the politicians, um, that ended up with basically uh, civilians being killed, um, mass um, uh, mass killings taking place in the capital itself. And, and, and so in that war from 2013 all the way up to, I would say, you know, it, it, there is a peace agreement, a 10 years peace agreement that's holding right now. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't say the the entire entire country is 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 as safe as it could be. Yeah, and so that war really uh, set us back um, uh, decades. But it 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 was it was like a within South Sudan. It was not with the North or not with Sudan. It was. It, it, I know the easy answer is it was an ethnic war, but it was much more than that, it, right? It's much more complicated than that. And so this, you're correct in saying that this was, obviously this was post-independence. Yeah. So South Sudan was its own country uh, with its uh, its own president, Salfakir Mayardit at the time. Um, it's still the president now. And, and, and so, and South Sudan is governed by one party. So the SPLM, the Sudan People Liberation Movement, that basically uh, led the liberation struggle during the war. And, and they had a split within the SPLM. And so that split within the SPLM is really what um, spilled over to the rest of the people who, some of whom didn't even care about politics mm. and, and people, civilians ended up being killed. Uh, because you know everyone has his own sort of followers and and and, uh, and soldiers, and so when this political dispute as to who, so the the dispute started as to who would become the chairperson or the leader of the political party, and and the thing the thinking is that whoever is the leader of the political party, because it's the dominant force in the country automatically becomes the president. So it was really a question of who becomes the president of the country. And that is really what led to the to the split. I think they were supposed to have some elections in somewhere around March of uh, 2013. So those elections got, got postponed. And and as the the squabbles within the leadership intensified, so the, the president at the time, I think in the summer of 2013, fired um, the cabinet, including his own vice president at the time. And so tensions started building uh, with ultimately in, 20, uh, in December of 2013, basically that culminated in the war um, in which the president uh, said there was a coup declared against him by his vice president and, and obviously the vice president and his people um, said you know, there, was, there was no such thing that happened. And so the war started. Uh, unfortunately, it ended up uh, with with ethnic uh, targeted killings that that happened in 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 the capital itself uh, and some other places outside of the capital as well. And the president was it Garang at the time? No, or was it's, it it's, Kier? It's, it's, the president was self Kier at okay. the time. So Garang uh, unfortunately died in two thousand and five, two okay. months after he took uh, to, uh, to, uh, took office. So in July of two thousand and five, uh, right after the, the the peace agreement was signed. Okay, so President Kier happened to be a Dinka, Adinka, ethnic yes. Dinka, yes. Mm-hmm. and then his vice president Machar happened to be, to be Newer. Newer. Yes, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it 
broke down along. They, broke down. They happen to be of different ethnic groups, which are the two main ethnic groups of South two Sudan, right? Just ethnic groups in South Sudan. And it was not an ethnic originally dispute. It was, it was not. Polit- political. It was political. It was politicians fighting for who would control the party. At least as I understand it, yes. But then, as you say, it manifested itself through ethnic ethnic cleansing, I guess you could call it in some places, right? That's where it, it led to. I have relatives who died in the in the fight itself and in, who were killed, uh, innocent people who were basically killed in their homes. And so uh, it's a very personal <laughs> issue for me, yes. Were there UN peacekeepers that came in and tried to... So they came afterwards. Afterwards. They came afterwards. So good. So the UN um, established what is called the UN Mission for South Sudan UNMIS, which has, for the last 10 years, I kid you not, has been uh, in South Sudan protecting South Sudanese in their own country. So there are these uh, internally displaced persons camps uh, in the country and different parts of, um, in the capital and different parts of the country where people have been living as internally displaced persons in their own country. The war technically ended in 2020, right? 2000, technically 2020. So there, but, there have been several agreements. So there was an agreement in 2015 uh, that was signed. And then, and that agreement broke down in 2016. Then there was another one in 2018 that mm-hmm. has been holding tenuously. And and what has, so part of what the agreement provides for as were these elections that uh, have been postponed. And so right now we are part in, in this transitional period. So the, the agreements provided for transitional government of national unity. And this transitional government national unity is supposed to take the country into elections. And so the elections were actually supposed to take place this year. And and through uh, negotiations within the the part the, within the ruling the the governing entity the transitional government of of national unity which is governed by the president so the president is on top and has five vice presidents and so it's supposed to be this collegial presidency they call it uh, and and so through these negotiations they decided to extend the transitional period so that now the elections are scheduled, I believe, for December of next year. So we have that. And whether those elections will take place is, you know, obviously a separate question. And, you know, I have very little faith in the system. And but, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Is there ethnic tension between the Dinka and the Nuer now? There are tensions, uh, whether you call them ethnic or what you want to call them, uh, there are tensions. And so uh, in the last two weeks, so as part of the agreement, so the government and the government, the ruling party, which is the the president's side and the vice president's side, obviously, were supposed to share power. And so ministries are divided um, according to the agreement. And, and, and it happens that the Ministry of Defense was given to the opposition and the Ministry of Interior was mm-hmm. given to the, to the president's, the president's uh, faction of, of this arrangement. And in the last two weeks, so the president relieved the, the Ministry of Defense and, and, and swapped the ministry through a presidential decree. I don't believe there was any negotiations to do that. Mm-hmm. And so the opposition has protested saying, you know, this wasn't the way to do it. It also happens that the Minister of Defense happens to be the wife of the Vice President, uh, which um, uh, is a separate issue. But the question is, you know, what is what is the mechanism or the process by which you 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 swap or you make these arrangements? And I think our regional leaders, you know, the 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 Prime Minister of Ethiopia has visited the country to Mm. sort of cool down these tensions. And so we don't know where this will head, but hopefully. 
cooler heads will prevail yeah. and 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 this can be resolved in in you know in a in a <laughs> in a peaceful manner yeah. is there talk about um dinka and newer dividing into separate countries now not 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 necessarily there you know you'll hear people saying we we want our own country it's not there isn't a groundswell for for that um maybe there is there are gr- voices out there that mm-hmm. say you know maybe they never need to establish their own country but really it's not um it's a, i don't believe it's a widely held mm. belief yeah there were literally millions of people killed in these Sudanese civil wars both before and after independence war. that i think many people are not even aware of that yes so war is a nasty affair it's never a good thing so in in those first two wars we lost about 2.5 million uh people including mm-hmm. my own father including a lot of relatives who were in, killed in combat this this round of war that started in 2013 i think right now the estimates are somewhere around 400,000 people who have died in the last 10 years and that may be a very gross underestimate yeah. well. yeah i i would venture to say that many americans are not familiar with that south sudanese wars but i but something that a lot of people were familiar with a number of years ago was was darfur yes. and i know that is nothing it's a separate issue from the south north re- regional dispute but can you tell us in just in a few words what happened in darfur and what's happening now people were very yes. it was in the news here but i guess 15 years ago people were protesting they were active and then it kind of just seemed to have has died away so is it still an issue or or what So yeah just to remind your listeners yeah so uh, the the issue of Darfur so the Darfur genocide was a big issue as I remember I was in St. Louis here and I was part of the Save Darfur coalition I remember going to number of schools high schools here kids protesting and wanting to do things and speaking to these different groups uh of um of of people who are really advocates uh, uh on behalf of people of Darfur. So Darfur as you correctly pointed out it's in part of so right now it's still in the old Sudan in the western part of 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 Sudan. But what what happened there is quite interesting because the the genocide in Darfur started in 2003. Mm. And part of what really people sometimes think about is maybe Bashir at the time because this was right during the negotiations of the north and the south conflict and it was almost coming to uh, a resolution and so some people be- believe you know there was maybe a, a way to divert the attention of mm. the people from here he went and created another conflict in the western part of the country where you had government backed militias basically going to the west western part of the country killing individuals uh, killing people and although these people were of the muslim faith they were mostly of african descent and so there was that issue happening so there was not necessarily you know the people of the islamic faith in in the northern part of sudan coming to you know dominate the people or kill the people in this western part of the country but it was mostly these individuals who basically they were mostly of uh, african descent yes mm-hmm. and why were they trying to kill them were they were they trying to take their land away or what 
What was the motivation? There are there are lots of issues around around land, and but these people were also at the same time asking for their own rights, and so they were saying, okay. seeing what was happening in the southern part of the country, so also started to rise up and uh, ask for their rights and say we need equal representation, we need development in our region, and so that was in response to those um, demands. The government basically um, uh, responded with brute force. And what's the situation now there? It's so. Is yeah, I don't know if you you're aware of the Sudan. You know, in the last two three years, uh, basically since 2019, has also had this turmoil of where Bashir, who was in charge at the time, was overthrown, and so everything in the country has just been murky. Uh, but it's a much better situation than it was uh, a long time ago because some of those people who were were part of, of that uh, were in the western part of the country. I think they're just through some arrangements. Now they are in, in, in the government. And so um, it's, um, I would say it's better than it was definitely in 2003. But uh, Has the killing stopped? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now let's talk about your... I want to talk about your father first, and then we'll yes. talk about you because yes. I, you wrote a book about your father. Yes, I did. Because he was kind of a he was part folk of hero. The so, struggle, can you yeah. talk about what his role was and all this stuff, and then we'll talk about you? Yes. Uh, so, my father, uh, Dr. Timothy Tutlam, was um, so he is a very interesting story. He left high school, so he was part of this cadre of young people. He went to high school in uh, high school called Rumbik, uh, senior secondary school, where if you look at the history of South Sudan, uh, most of the leaders of South Sudan have actually come out of that school. Mm. And in 1964, the government closed down schools in in, um, in Sudan due to protests from students. And, and so once schools were closed, so some of these young people uh, basically went back to the countryside, went to, went home. And my father, as they were planning to go back to their countryside, the so schools reopened, and then, you know, he tried to go back. Then he was involved in a car accident, broke his leg, broke his hands. But as a, after that, he basically, him and a group of his friends, decided to leave the country to join the, the liberation struggle that had started. Um, so this war that started in 1955, the mm. Anyanya one. So he left Sudan to go to Ethiopia. Now, we come from the border region of Ethiopia, so he, most of his family was around the border anyways. Uh, but so he left to go join the liberation struggle in, in, in Ethiopia, to go through the to the training camps, uh, military training camps, but what then happened was um, so the leaders of the liberation struggle at the time had this foresight or wisdom that people who had some level of education, particularly those who came from high school and you know had some potential, they sent them away to go to school, so that then they would come and run the country that they would would liberate. That turned out to be a really very smart move. People like John Garang went to Tanzania to learn. My father uh, actually stayed in Ethiopia, became, was trained as a medical doctor in mm. Ethiopia. I uh, came graduated from high school in, in the U.S. In, in, in a town called Lincoln, Maine. Uh, mm. So finished his high school, but went back to Ethiopia, went to, to medical school there. Um, as a medical doctor, I provided care to refugees, provided care to the soldiers who were fighting in the war. Uh, and and became a leader in the humanitarian uh, organizations, leading uh, humanitarian efforts. Then you know he was also you know part of the struggle. He was trained as a soldier to to be part of the military struggle, and you know he so had his rank uh, all raised rose all the way to the rank of commander. 
but in uh, in 1997 he became uh, the governor of Upper Nile State uh, and uh, tragically died two months later in a plane crash uh, in a town called Nasser, which is our district uh, headquarters. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. He was the governor of the governor of Upper Nile State. So South Sudan has ten states, and mm-hmm. Upper Nile happens to be one of them. Mm. Upper Nile, which is you know borders the northern part of Sudan mm. uh, and and parts of Ethiopia. Yes. Mm. Do they suspect some kind of foul play in the plane crash? Well, I think it was a person I have talked to. So, could, uh, you know, as you said, I wrote a book about my father and uh, don't read my research for the book. I talked to many people. There were so many people who were in the in the plane who survived, including the chief of staff of, 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 of my father, who was the director of the governor's office at the time. Uh, I've spoken to many of them and, and they tell us there wasn't really anything that happened. Some people, you know, are I don't know if it's propaganda or anything, they said there was shooting in the plane, which mm-hmm. really, there was no credence to that. Um, but, uh, you know, it was an accident. So the airstrip the, in, in Nasser um, is a very small airstrip. And this was a bigger plane than, than they had uh, planned for uh, mm-hmm. for the trip. And so what happened is usually the planes land, like, you know, like this table here from the side of the river, mm-hmm. go out, and then it comes back. For some inexplicable reason, the plane started landed for landing from the outside mm-hmm. and basically ran out of runway and plunged into the river. And oh. so literally that's what uh, we believe uh, most of the people who okay. ended up dying were people who were seated in the front oh. of the of mostly including you know the vice president of Sudan at the time. Wow. Um, and so most of the people who died were people who were seated in the front of the plane. Um, yeah. And you know, I heard about the plane crash on a radio. <laughs> like oh. this one. Yeah, I was in Nairobi, Kenya at the time and you know, we heard about it. I knew my father had to be in the plane because I talked to him a week earlier. You know, so he said, "I'm traveling to 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 Nasser to again. You know, we'll be traveling with the vice president." So I knew. Um, but when I went to the once I heard the radio, they didn't read out the names of the people <coughs> who had died. But when I went to their their office to ask them, uh, and they said, "Oh yeah, no, your dad wasn't in the plane. He had traveled before the delegation." And then I, you know, I didn't believe them. Yeah. Much, you know, I said, "Okay, like good." And so. And then I came home, I told my mom, you know, they told me that my dad wasn't in the plane, but we really figured it out the story. Um, So the next day, my mom and I went back to to this office where um, where they were. They tried to tell us the same story. But these people were in communications because the the person I was talking to was the head of the security in the office at the time. They had radio communications with the people on the ground. So they had to have known the plane crash happened at eight in the morning. And this was somewhere around 6, 7 p.m. Mm. when I was talking to them. Even the next day we came. And so what I then had to do, my mom said, okay, go call your brother. My brother was already in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. So I called my brother. Um, I went to downtown Nairobi. This was the time where you had to physically go to the telecommunications office, you know, mm-hmm. put money in the card and then make a phone call. And so I called my brother and he did confirm to me, yes, uh, our dad was in the plane and unfortunately yeah. he died. So now I had to go back home and, you know, Okay. I'm so really sorry to hear that. We need to take another sharp break now, but when we come back, I want to focus on you and your story because you're doing a lot of good work here. You're listening to 101.994.1 News Talk STL. Stories of New Americans brought to you by Global Transport for trucking, logistics, and warehousing. Visit them at globaltransport.us.com.
This is Stories of New Americans on News Talk STL. Welcome back. We're talking with Neil Tutlum, and he was just telling us uh, about his his father's story, who I would say was a founding, you know, yeah, founding very, yeah, very instrumental in South Sudanese independence. What's the name of that book that you wrote in case anybody like, would so, like to read it? Yeah, the book is called Liberating South Sudan, One Patient at a Time, uh, The Life of Dr. Timothy Tutlum. And that's available on Amazon? Or? Available on Amazon, uh, Border Books. Yes, you can okay. find it online. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, now, you. Yes. <laughs> you were actually born in Ethiopia, but mm-hmm. right at the border where it was sort of, you know, the arbitrary border. So the Part yeah. of my family comes from Ethiopia. Part of my family, family okay. is located in the southern part of Sudan. So, yes, yeah, so that cross-border. So how was your childhood growing up there? I, you know, I grew up in this town called Gambela. It's the southwestern part of Ethiopia, which is, you know, um, the beautiful place. So I was river. So I grew up, you know, playing in the river, um, uh, playing soccer with friends. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Most of us, everybody growing up played soccer or so some sort made out of, you know, uh, socks and, and plastic and, mm. and, and, and you play and you, you know, you don't know anything better. It's, you know, life, life was 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 what we knew it to be was was fantastic. at least for me was was good so we we unfortunately i didn't live in the refugee camps because the refugee camps were just you know were established you know outside of the town we lived inside of in the city but you know we had relatives in the refugee camps and my dad worked in the refugee camps and so we'd go and as a medical provider yeah, a medical provider in one of the largest refugee camps i remember whenever i would go to the refugee camps and you know there'd be lines and lines of patients he would leave at eight in the very early in the mm-hmm. morning to see patients and never come back until very late at night some people actually would follow him home mm. uh, and you know he'd say you know i can't do anything at home so let's let's meet at the hospital so yeah so it's a it's a very yeah uh, but that's you know um it that's the kind of childhood um i would say a little bit uh more uh, much better than than some people that that friends that uh, i know you mm-hmm. know have known since and and so i feel very fortunate in that sense yes mm-hmm. And then, um, did you attend a, just a regular school there? Or yes, I attended. So Ethiopian I start, school? Yes, so I started school in uh, first grade in, in Ethiopia, so I learned Amharic. Um, Amharic. Which is the, the, the language spoken in, in Ethiopia, the national language of Ethiopia. So, um, yeah, I learned it until, you know, I left Ethiopia going to, to Kenya. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then, yeah, trace your steps until yes. you came here. You went yes. from there to Kenya so for school? Interesting. Yeah. So, so for those of you who know the history of Ethiopia, so Sudan, South Sudanese came to Ethiopia around, you know, even before 1983, the, the, the Second Civil War. So they settled there. In 1991, Ethiopia had its own problems. And the government that supported the North, the, the South Sudanese was toppled by this group of government that were supported by people from North Sudan. And so everybody basically had a mass exodus going back into South Sudan, even though South Sudan at the time didn't have any peace. Oh. And so we all walked back to South Sudan almost about 200 miles to really? about a month to get to where we needed to get to, basically our home, uh, ancestral homeland. How old were you then? Uh, probably about 11, 12 years old. Um, yeah, I think somewhere around there. Um, and so we walked all the way to South Sudan and, and basically um, 
went there and stayed there for you know for about a year or so my you know my you know my, my uncle came back to Ethiopia so I came back with my uncle because there wasn't really there was nothing going on I think the the schooling went all the way up to fourth or fifth grade at the time so you know there was no nothing for the rest of us if you were past that grade there was nothing for us to do um, and so I came back to Ethiopia with my uncle went back to school my uncle Dr. Kong Tutlam who is um is, is, is in Ethiopia um, and then you know went to high school started school um, and then my my father was on the other side of the country where in Equatoria you know because of the liberation struggle people were all over the place that's where his assignment was and as a, the result of that split that happened in 1991 we didn't have any contact with him until some people tried to kill him mm-hmm. in 1993 1992 some group tried to assassinate him basically he had to flee for his own life spent a whole month walking into Uganda and then came to Kenya and then was able then to extract my mom and my younger siblings and so brought them to Kenya and so I joined them in Kenya I think it was 1994 so I ended up going to high school in Kenya until you know mm-hmm. and lived there until we came to the US Was that a, a Swahili speaking school or English? Uh, so yeah it was both Swahili and English. Did so you speak there, those languages then? So I learned I was you you're supposed to <laughs> One learn, more language. <laughs> you're supposed to learn Swahili as a requirement you're supposed because you're supposed to take that exam with you know your high school living certificate exam includes Swahili so you have to you have to learn it now how well I learned it is a different question mm. but uh, but um, yes so I went to high school in Kenya graduated from high school then then came and went to college in the US okay and you did not come directly to st. Louis right yes, no I settled in Nashville Tennessee that's where my my family my brothers had already settled there so when we came okay. we joined them in Nashville Tennessee yes okay and were you coming to go to high school then or college no, I guess I had already completed high school when I was in Kenya so I then I came to uh, when I came to the US then I went straight to college okay I went to T- Tennessee State University in Nashville okay um, and then from there I came to st. Louis to graduate school so I went and studied um, my master of public health at st. Louis University mm-hmm. And then um, w- after my graduation from St. Louis University, I worked at Washington University School of Medicine, started as a research assistant, and then you know, uh, as a research coordinator in the Department of Neurology, working with some brilliant people. And then went back to St. Louis University to get my PhD. So after I got my PhD from SLU, I worked at St. Louis County Department of Public Health where I managed the chronic disease epidemiology program. And, and then came back to to Washu after you know five years you know post COVID uh, with all COVID and all um, I came to to Washu started as a postdoc um, uh, you know 2020 2021 and you know at the Brown School um, and you know working uh, with uh, my mentor Fred Salmala who's been doing incredible incredible work in in Uganda uh, in the center called International Center for Child Health and Development. Uh, and now just this the January I became a research assistant professor at the Brown School and uh, so my research uh, focuses on the impact of war trauma of yeah. Sudanese um, mostly of refugees who have been affected by conflict uh, based in the United States here but I also I'm doing some projects right now in the northern part of Uganda and the refugee camps looking at the impact of um, conflict the mental health impact and conflict and that intersection with HIV oh. uh, in that population and so I mean now in the business of trying to design interventions and test interventions to address some of these mental health uh, issues 
displacement or challenges that young people face as a result of conflict. You, we all know those of us who study the trauma, mm-hmm. people have experienced conflict, usually have a high prevalence of uh, trauma-associated disorders, looking at PTSD, depression, anxiety. But there's also this belief, which is uh, a very deep interest of mine, that you know that trauma can also be passed to the next generation, which is why I'm also for those who are in the United States. I'm studying yeah. the the impact of that intergenerational transmission of trauma, looking at how that is basically. Uh, this this is this area of research uh, mainly f- was basically you know done around the children of the survivors of the Holocaust. And, and now, you know, similar situations that uh, populations that have experienced trauma. Um, so my question as a researcher was, could this also be happening in the South Sudanese community? Because we know we have children who have emotional behavioral problems, not doing very well in school and all of this. And with the hope that, you know, if we do identify this, then we can maybe... Uh, figure out how to address these problems in these children because uh, unfortunately we have a lot of kids who are in jails or being thrown in jail and rather than criminalizing that behavior uh, can we take a more trauma-informed approaches to address some of these issues is, is basically why you know I want to be, I'm doing this this work that I'm doing here. You're f- you wrote your dissertation on this, I think, yes, and you. Yes, so yes. you're focusing primarily on South Sudanese women living in the United States. So now? yeah, my dissertation focused on South Sudanese living uh, in the United States. Who I deliberately, I deliberately studied South Sudanese because that's a population I had access to. But I really want it's. A, this is applicable to all refugees that are, are people who have experienced some sort of conflict. Yes. And what were your findings? The data suggests that there is indeed this this intergenerational transmission of trauma. So, for example, mother, so looking at the interaction of the trauma and and PTSD among these 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 mothers, increase the likelihood that their children would have PTSD, depression, and, and anxiety as well. And so that's really the data suggests that that is the case even in this population. Um, really? And so we need to do more studies, obviously, to 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 pursue that. And I'm actually. Fortunately, I'm going to be able to to do that through funding to, from the National Institutes of Health uh, to 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 build the evidence base. Did you f- um, speak mostly with women here in St. Louis or all over the no, country? No, so it was so no, not in St. Louis. So my study population was based in Omaha, Nebraska. That's where we have the largest South Sudanese population. Really? Yeah, in in Nashville, Tennessee, which is also another place we have a large South Sudanese population. Yes, we don't have a lot of that many people in in St. Louis, mm. unfortunately. Yeah. What do you have any any recommendations or what what can be done to help these? Yeah, so these are children that were born here, were born here but their mothers had been traumatized. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I deliberately picked children who were born here. So if, even if the mothers had children who were born outside of the U.S., I excluded those. I only included their children who were born here. And the data suggests that they are also affected by their maternal trauma. And so the the question for me is that how do you treat this population? You know, you know, a child might be expelled from school for for something that um, may not necessarily be you know something may be addressed by a social worker, right? But maybe addressed through some trauma informed humane uh, approaches. And so that's what I I hope that this this study can can do. Yes. Um, and I'm sure this can be replicated in many other in refugee many populations other refugee too. Population. So okay, I, I, the only reason I focused in, like, you know, um, in, on the South Sudanese population, this is a population I work with, you know, on a regular basis. I I had access to the population was, you know, um, so I, I 
I still basically targeted that population and we have a large you know population in Omaha Nebraska mm-hmm. I had um, relationships with organizations that could allow me to recruit participants but um, with with the next iteration of it I'm actually going to target all refugees from mm-hmm. wherever they come from it it will not matter you know through resources mm-hmm. from places like the National Institutes of Health will be able to do um, yeah, to, to conduct those studies yes. were there other factors besides trauma like did you did you study the their family situation before the conflict to see if maybe there were other extenuating circumstances that may have so, caught so that's always a concern in the popul- in the in the population uh, and we often you know um, we I'm, I'm going to be an epidemiologist here we often control for this in right. our analysis uh, so you know you might think about their neighborhood or having experienced some sort of trauma even here you know trauma is defined broadly you know as child who is in a car accident that is traumatic for them and so we often have to control for those variables in in our analysis yes but it is an issue Neil, I, I wish we had more time to talk, but I'm getting the high sign that we, we need to wrap things up. But is there anything you'd like to say before we close? Any any observations about America that you noticed that we might notice? Anything you see as, as an immigrant that good or bad? No. Yeah, no, th- thank, thank you so much, really, Ron, for the opportunity to be here today. Um, you know, uh, we, we take a lot of things for granted. I have lived here long enough now. We take a lot of things for granted. Uh, and, and those of us, you know, when we come from outside, really um, appreciate, you know, um, a lot of things about about the United States. Even just the the ability to go and vote you know, mm. is, is is really. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember my first vote, and as soon as I got my U.S. citizenship in two thousand and six, you know, that was the first thing that I wanted mm. to be able to do. So these things that we we often take for granted, right. are, I think, are important. And yeah. focusing on the big picture, I think. Um, is is really important. I always re- get reminded of these things when I talk to people like you from other countries. Just yeah. Well, I wish we had more time to talk. I I really admire all your good work. Thank. thank and you. I think you're making a difference in in people's lives. And I hope you can continue to do these studies and maybe help some other populations too. We have many of them in St. Louis, as you know. Thank you. I'm focused on that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you again. You've been listening to Stories of New Americans on 101.9, 94.1. News Talk STL.